0: Wrestling tuna 60 feet underwater, chasing barrels, all while growing a kick-ass brand. Welcome to Episode 6 with the founders of Slippa, Jeff and Eric Long. You are listening to Len Jones, Party of Two, where experts and influencers speak honestly and openly about their keys to success. Sponsored by TrueFace.ai, where your face is the key. For more information on TrueFace, please contact your host at ian at TrueFace.ai. Now, pay close attention, because you going to learn today. You know, my stoke level is off the charts today. For one, this was my first podcast recorded with all my brand new state-of-the-art equipment. And secondly, I got to grab an hour of time to talk with not one, but both of the founders of Slippa, Jeff and Eric Long. These two brothers dive deep into a range of topics like how to build a lifestyle brand, how surfing stimulates creativity and gives them a sense of purpose, the dangerous yet incredibly rewarding art of spearfishing in the open ocean, and much, much more. You'll note in this podcast that Jeff and Eric have different opinions on a lot of things, which is great because they both bring a unique skill set to the company. I particularly loved what they had to say about entrepreneurship and the ups and downs they've overcame because they teach a lot of practical lessons that you can avoid on your personal endeavors. So plug in your headphones, hook up that Bluetooth and pull out the yellow notebook because this is a damn good one. Without further ado, let's jump into it. And we're live baby, Jeff and Eric Long, how you guys doing, how you doing? Good, very good. Doing well. And so right off the bat, how did two Long Island bros end up in San Diego? Ooh, I don't know. Eric, why don't you explain that one?
1: Uh, Well, it all begun right when I graduated college and a few of my friends were living out here already, so it made it a little easier to think about. But
2: after visiting, it was an easy decision. Uh, that's false.
0: <laughs> Tell us the real <laughs> real.
2: All right, the real story was I was gonna drive cross country with Christian, our friend, our one friend that was living out here, Christian bailed on me. I was not trying to drive across the country by myself. And I took the opportunity and I saw Eric being free at Doma college about to make a mistake and take on a a job I don't think he was going to like. And I convinced him to drive across country with me and start a company. And the way I sold them on it was I told them that if things didn't work out, just look at it as a long surf trip. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs>
3: <laughs> Eric, what was that job that Jeff says you weren't gonna like?
1: It was a commercial fishing job in New York. <laughs> <laughs> like deadliest catch type stuff. Basically, yeah, it was middle of winter. It would have been pretty rough conditions, but I was ready for it. We were already like surfing in the winter all the time, so we weren't gonna be in the water. It wasn't. Let's just say it wasn't like life in San Diego. No. Yeah, it would, have been, it, it would have been
0: good maritime practice. Wow, that would have been sick, though. Yeah. I remember Jeff telling me that the vision for SLIPA kind of came when you guys were actually on that road trip. Is that correct?
2: Yeah, I would say the idea of running, starting a business was on that road trip. The idea of SLIPA kind of came up on the trip, but it was a completely different concept than what it is now.
1: Yeah, it's constantly evolving, but I mean, I think... Anytime you start a brand when you're in your 20s, you know you're you're still growing as a person yourself. So I think
0: it's uh, one of those things that you you kind of evolve with it. What do you think has been like you just mentioned in your 20s? So how when do you, how old were you when you started this?
1: I was 23, about to turn 24.
0: I was 25. Was this your guys' first business? Um, technically
2: yes. Like our first business that we owned. I mean, Eric and I were always had the entrepreneur
0: spirit, but this was like our first official like venture. In terms of always wanting to be an entrepreneur, like, did you guys have a roadmap or what was your thought process? Because in, first of all, how did you end up with round towels? Oh, that that's, that's a long story. I mean, we, we obviously didn't start with that.
2: Um, Eric and I are avid surfers. We grew up surfing in New York, so we knew we wanted to do something that involved that, that passion but Eric actually came up with the first product idea for the business. I
1: I think we, we, we didn't want to be entrepreneurs. We were already entrepreneurs at the time. Like I was, I was, I've been an entrepreneur since I was like 15, working for myself doing surf lessons or doing whatever I could to be my own boss, you know? And I always figured out that it was the most money you're going to make with being your own boss, you know? So it's like, you're, you're going to be happier that way. You're going to be able to do things, that you'd like to do more often if you're working for yourself. So I don't think it's an idea of wanting to be an entrepreneur. I think people just are entrepreneurs.
2: Well, yeah, I mean, some people definitely have the, you know, the ability to do it. I think Eric had an experience in, in Long Island that kind of gave him the first idea for Slippa. Yeah. I don't know how, how far that went
1: with us, but I think um, eventually we, we kind of caught on to what was really in in that at that time and, and kind of what was, what was moving faster. And, um, you know, like I said, evolving with what moves because what works one year doesn't work another year and, um, vice versa for, for certain so
2: Eric, what was the first thing? The
1: foot sock. Yeah. So <laughs> what, so why, why was it? Why, why that? Uh, people have a lot of h- trouble getting in their wetsuits. That was like the, the idea behind it.
2: Yeah. So Eric was a surf instructor in Long Island. So he basically, um, dealt with a lot of people having issues getting their wetsuits on and off. So this this kid would bring plastic bags to the beach, and they would put it on their feet and just slip in and out of their wetsuits, and it made it ten times easier. So we went to uh, New York City. We sourced some ripstock nylon. Uh, I went to like a pretty um, underprivileged area in New Jersey, and I found a person that does sewing. Had her sew up like a couple hundred nylon booties, essentially. And that was the jumpstart to our brand. It was that one product. And after selling it to surf shops, we cl- quickly learned there was no money in the surf
3: industry. I'd say literally within a week, we knew we had a pivot. So with that idea, you know, slipping into a wetsuit, is that where the name came from, Slippa? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> so,
2: yeah, essentially, we, we figured out right away that it wasn't going to work. The surf shops are broke. They had trouble paying invoices as little as two hundred dollars it was like a nightmare and uh i I don't even think for a beginner surfer
1: it was even for an advanced surfer because surfing in new york you had to wear a six millimeter wetsuit anyone and everyone had a hard time getting in and out of that suit so like we we were using it at first like we liked it because it's the winter time you have a suit that's so thick you can't even get into it so it made sense at the time for us too but you know now that we live out here we realize that Um, people don't really care as much. They'll just take a plastic bag and throw it out and there's a lot of waste and, you know, everything like that. Even with the laws that, you know, make you buy a bag, it still didn't make sense. Like Jeff said, it's, you know, surf industry is just a very interesting place to be in. Um, a lot of turnover, mostly things going on sale pretty quick and, you know, just (laughs) going to another graphic t-shirt, you know, that's just the same, same thing over and over again.
0: In terms of your current product line. So you have multiple towels. I love them. I personally cuddle up with them every night appreciate that they're phenomenal and actually yesterday i was i went to la jolla cove and i ran into some random people that saw the towel and they said oh dude is that a round towel and i was like yeah bro <laughs> and they're like i have one too i'm like oh really yeah my friends you know they have this company and they're like I, I think it's the same one they saw the slippers on they're like yep that's the one awesome and i that's was like awesome. dope yeah that's cool i love seeing our towels around town so what other products um, kind of inspired you to for you to create? Because you started that as a flagship. You were kind of the first ones to bring round towels into San Diego. But your your brand is kind of constantly evolving. Can right. Kind of expand on that.
2: Yeah. So I mean, basically, I had a friend living in Australia and he noticed the trend of the round towels. And that's why we actually started it. He contacted me, said, hey, I'm noticing this becoming a big trend here you should be the first one to do it in the States. So Eric and I took it upon ourselves to kind of get it here and introduce it to the stores and to the people of like Southern California and eventually all over the country. But as we were doing that, Eric was constantly going through this, I guess you could say, um, development process where he wanted to do a lot more product wise. And that's when he started reaching into like different avenues, especially with products that are recycled materials. So Eric was pretty awesome at, sourcing things that were being wasted and figuring out a way to, to re reuse it into a product not only a product but a luxury product so now it's you know not just something that's going to end up in a landfill but it's going to end up in a high-end boutique
0: would you say that eric is more of the idea generator product designer of the two of you i would say eric's the creative for sure
1: i think that at this point we're kind of like working together to figure out what we really want to use and you know remember be, be remembered by because that's what it seems to be that You know, you make something and they remember you by that, like, pretty well as far as, like, what we're doing right now. Um, The recycled leather is is definitely something that we could expand on and pretty much, you know, move over to. And I think um, it's just a matter of finding the right designs and templates that we really use every day.
0: Is there any certain companies that inspire you guys about where you want to kind of take the brand? Because you guys are all about sustainability. Everything you do, zero plastic waste. Zero emissions. You're all about that life. It's very inspiring. But are there certain companies that kind of motivate you to, that you're trying to, you know, strive towards? I'd say the biggest for me is Patagonia. Um, I I think what
2: Yvonne Chouinard's done with that company is pretty unbelievable, Uh, especially because he's the type of person that makes decisions for his business that aren't always good at an economic standpoint. But he's only considering the environmental um, consequences when he makes his decisions. And I think that's pretty, pretty a- admirable. So I'd say, you know, Patagonia would be uh, a brand that I, I personally inspire to be like.
1: I, I think on the contrary, there's a lot of people that do their own thing, like craftsmen. And I think they're the people that I really res- am, am like, I respect more because they're just working for themselves doing things like very, uh, what's a small batch, I guess you could say. And that's kind of what we're doing right now, too, is just working with artists. And, you know, that's that's, I think, a very admirable thing for people to do is follow their passion and, you know, make a living in their, you know, special trade as far as like whatever it is, leather goods or, you know, dyeing things or, you know, doing art, you know, resin art or something cool like that. And I, I, I think there's a lot to be said about someone that could make a living doing something artistic. And that is like probably where I get most my inspiration because I think those people have something to share with the world and you know maybe it's not something everyone could see everyone you know knows those big brands but no one
0: knows the smaller guys that really you know have something that no one else has in terms of your guys distribution what do you think has been a lesson if you would in terms of getting your products to the end consumers is a lot of it online Or do you guys see that going to trade shows and going to different um, networking events or whatever that you're using to sell your product or storefronts, like what has been bigger for you and kind of where are you leaning towards in the future? I mean, what we're leaning towards in the future is different than what we're doing now. Um,
2: Utilizing uh, retailers is our main method of distribution to get it to an end consumer. So Eric and I um, did a very, I would say, aggressive tactic to get our products out there into the public. Um, We literally went door to door and just pretty much knocked down doors in order to get our products into the stores, into retailers, into resorts, Um, you name it, you know, we just showed up and and made it happen. So with that being said, we mostly get all of our product to our end consumer that way, but Eric and I are definitely on a path right now where we want to start investing more in our online presence and distributing more directly to a customer through our website. So that's the future of our business. That's where we really want to start heading. And
0: ideally, you know, majority of our business be done through our website. What was the biggest first sale that you guys got in a certain like distributor that for the first time you guys looked at each other, you're like, whoa, like we're, this is happening. We're doing this.
1: I would say custom, custom designing. You know, because um, we, we sold on like a number of platforms. And at one point um, we were doing really well on Etsy and uh, we got, you know, um, invited to the biggest trade show in our market. And they wanted to do a custom design that was like, you know, well over what we're used to ordering. And from that point on, we realized that we had to shift gears and, and move into the resort game. Um, that's kind of where, where we settled in.
2: Yeah, I think that was definitely our
0: big big like aha moment what was on the flip side i know you guys have shared some privately with me what do you think was the biggest kind of like l you guys took tv the, the biggest loss like you were you just thought you were spending money and nothing really happened yeah
1: sometimes you get emails from people that you know they promised the world and then you know they don't exactly deliver when but something's
2: too good to be true it usually
1: is yeah T- television special the one time and we had a you know give them inventory and um they sold it on their tv show but Apparently their contract to pay the television network was really high and they ended up going out of business. So um, a lot of times you need to tread very carefully and
0: growing fast is not always the best thing. So, And you said you guys have at some points, you guys have had like a lot of inventory, correct? Yeah, times for sure. Have you developed a system that you think is better now than it was before in terms of minimizing Absolutely. inventory? Yeah. Can you share like what that looks like? I mean,
1: it's all about, you know, planning your POS out for the next season. You know, it's like you have to create samples, have those samples months ahead of time and then collect your POS and be able to estimate what you're going to go through, you know, because the problem is people um, they end up getting, you know, their collections in just in time for the season and their buyers don't even know what they have in, in for that season. So you need to be you need to be hitting your buyers with samples months before you order. You know, and that's the best
2: way to plan ahead. But yeah, for example, like summer starts in May, May, June. So you should have your orders coming in February. You know, you should be giving yourself months in advance to produce. And I think we learned the hard way that with lead times, with dealing with factories overseas, it's always a little longer than they promise. So if they tell you, oh, yeah, 60 days, you'll have your production run in your hands. It's more like 90 days, 120 days before you actually have that
0: product in your warehouse. Now, something that I know um, I'm learning from you guys that I want to get much more into, and uh, something I look up to you guys with is your spearfishing.
1: <laughs> yeah, you're always asking questions about that. Always.
0: <laughs> Absolutely. One so of the more
1: interested people I know.
0: When did you get into spearfishing? Uh, back
1: in New York, actually, when um, when we were, you know, in the summertime, it would get really flat, there'd be no waves, so. Uh, you'd see people you know catching big fish off the beach and hear about it from friends of friends and I just kind of got into it from people I knew and they, they showed me the ropes as, as best they could and took it from there it's kind of like
2: I actually started in California I didn't even do it in New York really yeah I, I mean honestly like it, was, it looked cool what Eric was doing in New York but when I got to California and saw what was going on here I just knew I had to be a part of that so
0: can you explain what spearfishing is to people that don't know what it is
2: So spearfishing is essentially free diving and free diving is the art of holding your breath. So it's when you literally go down on one breath and you have just you and your gun, which is basically uh, a long spear that's powered by two or two to four powerful bungees that are pulled back. And um, when you go down, you want to spend a little time on the bottom or if you're you know, doing some blue water hunting, you want to spend about, you know, 30 to 30 seconds to to 60 seconds just floating into like a a mid a mid level area and you just want to kind of observe the fish that are around you and you essentially just pick the one you want to take point and shoot. And uh, I think what most people get
1: confused by is the fact that you're swimming around with the stick and you're like throwing it at fish, which is not the case. Um, you're actually using like a, a elastic band powered gun that has a metal shaft on it with you know a, a thin cable that's tied to the shaft. So most people just immediately think you're throwing sticks at fish, but it's not the case. it's it's a gun. So
3: Now me being someone that knows, you know, hang out with you guys, I understand spear fishing a little bit more than the next person, but to, you know, you say you go open blue water, spear fishing like, How do you mentally prepare to just jump into the open ocean and and then dive down 60, however many feet to, you know, how do you mentally go into that and be able to hold your breath that long?
1: I I think that you mentally prepare by um, just being excited about, you know, being able to dive in clear water because for most people in most places that they don't have that, you know, for most divers out there, there's that's not the reality it's usually cloudy water they're miserable because they're diving in cloudy water you know so it's like any chance you get to dive in clear water um and obviously swimming around big fish probably the, the best tasting and you know uh sport kind of <laughs> opportunized fish you know everyone wants to get those bluefin or, or yellowtail so um there's a lot of a lot of excitement to even see that so there's a, there's not really a lot of stress on you I think people get more worried about diving in cold water. That's that's murky and brown. You know, to me, that's sketchy. Like in I,
2: California, the water is usually not that good visibility.
1: Right. So being in blue water is a dream. You know, most people look forward to that. That's that's kind of like a, a luxury, you know, and um, you just kind of.
2: I don't think there's anything you could really do to mentally prepare for blue water hunting cause you never know what you're going to see out there. I think the the main thing is actually to control your nerves and not get too excited. Cause the the last minute thing you start think getting excited bad. is yeah. you're wasting energy. You're yeah. wasting oxygen. So it's like you almost want to go into it like don't expect much. Hope you see the fish of a lifetime. Um, hope you don't see a, a large white shark. And, uh, and, yeah, I mean, just kind of take it as it comes. But I think overthinking is a big no-no when it comes to spearfishing.
3: Do you guys do any off-land training for it or just – Wake surfing. up in the morning I'm ready to go. Lots of surfing. Surfing. Yeah. How do they go hand in hand?
1: Uh cardio I'd say. I'd say the cardio helps a lot. And just being in the water, just being able to like, you know, uh take waves to the face and just <laughs> you know, just
2: roll around in it. And being comfortable in the yeah. water. I don't think there's any practice for it aside just free diving just it's like surfing like oh how do you train for surfing you just keep surfing
1: it's being calm being very calm and then that mood switching really really fast once you shoot the gun you know it's like you're really chill you're relaxed you know you have to be and then you know you finally cope with that fish you, you get used to its behavior and and uh, once you shoot it then your your heart rate goes up and you know things everything the whole reef probably just you know, start shuddering all oh, the fish flee away. So
0: there's there's that. The the part I still don't kinda understand is the breath hold. Because when I try to swim down, I typically, you know, go down and I do the whole breaststroke and I send it down and by 10, 15 feet I'm like kinda tired. There's no
1: breaststroke when you free dive.
0: It's only fins, it's only sinking. kicking.
2: S- yeah. So you have weight belts on right. you and you're just sinking. Yeah. You wanna you wanna wear a decent amount of weight. Like the idea is to sink, not to swim down. So when you point yourself down, um, if you're wearing the right amount of weight. I mean, I, I've seen Eric get down to 80 feet in less than eight seconds. Wow. 17 pounds of weight, 140 pounds.
1: So it's different. You know? So are the
0: fins They're They're massive so that they you basically. can. I think the weight is the more important part. The fins up. are more about getting back up. Yeah, um, the, the weights are more about sinking you
2: down. So when you point yourself down, streamline yourself, you kind of just shoot straight down. The fins is what is going to bring you back up and kind of counter that weight and allows you to get back at a, at a decent time.
0: What was the uh, most epic catch you guys have ever gotten? The, the biggest thrill, and can you describe that thrill? I could,
1: I could answer that question for Jeff and myself, I think. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> yeah, and Sky was there for that day too, but... Um, I mean, shooting bluefin tuna is probably the best thing you could do as far as like a, a, a race goes. Bluefin? They move so fast. You have to be really, really perfect timing. Everything. It's like threading the needle in a, in a haystack. So when you get that, when you th- when you actually make that move and you get that fish, it's, it's a big thrill. And uh, that's what's kind of going on a lot right now. It's like seeing
2: a unicorn underwater. Yeah. And they're
1: just ripping at you. Like, so how fast are they moving? Oh, man. I mean. 20, 30 miles an hour at some point. Sometimes they're slow, but every time we see them they're flying they're by and they're moving places so it's there's people that could that you know you, you could find them where they're where they're moving slow or, or or wherever it is eating bait but you know it's you got to chase them down so
0: what about like the fish being um having chemicals in it do you worry about mercury and different stuff in terms of the fish you're catching or i
1: think about it a lot but um you know we're not getting full-size bluefin there's definitely some fish out there that are well over 300 pounds and those fish are probably the ones that have a lot more mercury to worry about. The ones we're getting are under, you know, a hundred. So it's not really a, a long, long living fish. You know, they grow really fast. Th- so there's
2: a correlation there based on the size. The longer they live, the more metals are going to have built up in their bodies. They're apex predators. So basically, the longer they're living, the more they're eating,
0: the more they're collecting in their bodies how much meals can one bluefin tuna 40 pound let's say because that's what you guys caught how many meals can that provide
1: i mean it depends like they're they're saying not to eat more than five or seven ounces of this stuff but obviously no one's doing that in a we're, serving we're doubling that at at, at least you know <laughs> yeah so i mean i i would say for at least a month or two the way you know we eat it if you eat it the right way you know
0: what's the right way
1: uh i would say just make like fresh poke with it don't don't cook it and you know Maybe sear it or just enjoy I it. I would say about sixty to seventy
0: servings. Yeah, for one fish, for yeah. a, for like a fifty-pound bluefin. Jeff, you had a really terrifying experience when spearfishing, right? But it was one of your most epic moments I've as well. I've had a few
2: terrifying moments spearfishing. Can you, can you share that?
0: So, I um I, I spearfish
2: a lot with a, a good friend of mine who's who's actually been spearing like thirty years in California. So he likes to push me a lot. Um and one time he took me out to an island offshore here called San Clemente Island. Uh I call it the land of dinosaurs. I mean, you go out there and you see lobster half the size of you. Uh you see massive fish and I saw the one of the biggest yellowtail I've ever seen kind of swimming through a school of Bonita. Um the visibility wasn't that good that day. So you I basically would see this school of fish probably five to ten pounds. Probably about two thousand of them, swimming through the channel, and I'm swimming through them. So they're coming at me, and I'm going like against traffic, basically. And all of a sudden, I see this massive shadow, and it just dwarfed all the other fish. This thing was a beast, and uh, the, it was clearly a yellowtail, but it was just a home guard. It was, you know, the biggest yellowtail on the on the island probably at the time. And uh, I lined up my gun. I didn't think twice. I pulled the trigger, and I had a great shot on it. It was like dead center. Um, right up uh, right under the dorsal so it was a holding shot wasn't going anywhere and the fish took off and it took me for a ride, but I had a, a reel. Um, so I, I let some line go, you know buttoned it up, kind of held on the fish and I had it for a while just kind of floating there. and as I got closer and closer to the fish I started to realize how big this thing was and uh, at the time I didn't have a dive knife on me, which is, the biggest no-no, one of the biggest no-no's in spearfishing. You should always have a knife on. You never know what kind of situation you're going to get into. Um, And to subdue the fish, ideally, you want to get under it. You want to take your knife, cut the gill, which is like essentially cutting its, you know, it's cutting its throat. You want to bleed it out Um, and then you want to brain it, which is when you drive the knife right directly between the eyes to the brain. And that essentially kills the fish. Uh, I didn't have that knife, (laughs) unfortunately, so I knew I was going to be in for a fight. And prior to that dive, my buddy told me they caught nine yellowtail the week before, didn't land one because the sea lions took them all. So basically, when you're on an island, there's other predators, especially sea lions, that will steal your catch, and it's really common. So that whole time in the back of my head, I'm like, I'm not letting a frickin sea lion get this fish. Like there's no way. So I, I went for the fish, I grabbed it, could not subdue it. I was losing air. Um, I probably came close to, to drowning. Got my head above water and uh, yelled for my buddy, Sandy. And I was like, yo, c- get over here ASAP, like get over here. I was waving my hands, like splashing water. He freaks out, swam over in like under two seconds. Like he's we call him Poseidon. The guy's an animal. <laughs> um, he got over there and i would never seen this before. But Sandy goes down, bear hugs this fish. Now, keep in mind, Sandy's 6'2, 240 pounds, pure muscle. Bear hugs this fish and this thing just gator rolls him. Um, I just see Sandy spinning above the surface while the fish is swimming and he's just spinning like this over and over again. Just get rolled. Wow. And Sandy Sandy was like pretty impressed by the power of that fish. I mean, I, I could tell in his eyes he was a little worried um, and I see him take his knife, get it under the gill and he just disappeared in like a cloud of blood. It was bad. It was literally like a plume, like you know, like twenty yards surrounding us. So at that point, I'm like, also like, oh shit, here comes some great white sharks, um, and I see Sandy just swimming out of the cloud with this fish, and I'm like, oh my god, that thing is way bigger than I thought it was when I first shot it, and uh, yeah, that was that was probably one of the most you know, pinnacle points of my lifetime. I just felt so good after that, getting that fish on the boat. But thank God for Sandy being there. Cause I probably wouldn't be here today if he wasn't. Wow. I think
1: Jeff's a little bit of an extremist when it comes to doing things, you know, like he just got into the sport and he was already like night diving on islands off of, off of California, which is like one of those things you really don't want to just
2: jump right into, especially without the right equipment. Yeah. My you first time spearfishing was at midnight on an island <laughs> on a boat. I've never been on. Do with, you have a dive light with you? Yeah. But I was with like basically professional divers. He's never
1: used any of this equipment. He's like, I was you, with. I had yeah. a
2: surf wetsuit, not even a dive suit. Yeah. I was very ill-equipped. Is there a, like a
0: spotter that goes into this? Like, if you're, no
1: one, no one really has your back. Everyone like tells you that they're watching you, but like it's pitch black out, and they're looking for for lobster, and you're looking for something. Everyone's looking for something. It's not really easy to pay attention, to everyone. You know, because like
0: I imagine you go down sixty feet, and something goes wrong. Are they just like? shit we should go check on them like is it no, it probably or- takes, it takes at least like 10 minutes like you know what i mean like it, it's
2: it, there's not enough time usually that's why a lot of people die doing it it depends on the situation i think with lobster diving it's a lot more issues because it's pitch black people spread out people get spread out because you don't want to go for the same spots because the lights actually scare the lobster so you want to dive alone um when you're blue water hunting and you have one diver in the water two divers in the water and you notice one underwater for more than like five minutes then obviously you, and you know their breath hold can't go over, like, two minutes. You know something's wrong. And you definitely want to get in there and check on
0: them. But I think for other types of diving, it's it's a huge risk. What would be, like, the all-time greatest spearfishing experience that you guys would just dream of in terms of going to a certain place? Where would it be? It's a good question.
2: I think for me to be Ascension Island, I mean...
0: I mean, I t- to me,
1: I, I think... That Ascension Island is a place where people just go and pay lots of money and just, you know, become face-to-face with a fish within five feet of water. Like, there's not much chase to that to me. I think a dream location would be, like, somewhere in the Indian Ocean or, like, South Pacific, like, chasing, like, giant uh, dog tooth tuna or something more rewarding, you know, because... Uh, there's a lot of places people go and they pay a bunch of money and they got this fish of a lifetime, but there's really no chase to it. It just comes right up to them within five minutes of being offshore. It's I like mean,
2: they're, the, they're, they're yellowfin tuna that are over 600 pounds. I mean, they're the size of a truck. But that is crazy. I think that it's, it's in in one sense of the word, Eric's saying that there's not much of a sport in it because the fish are so fearless, they'll swim right up to you.
1: And it's a very uh, uh, like isolated place.
2: Like it's They don't see people yeah. ever. Um, so when they see a diver, they, they, they check them out right away um what eric's saying is for him it's the dog tuna which is a much more challenging fish to hunt so i'd say like that would probably be more rewarding but i think the experience of going to ascension island and taking down a fish the size of a frickin' truck
1: yeah it's definitely a good good thing to have on your bucket list but not the most rewarding to me
0: what's a good like baby step for someone getting into spearfishing hmm shore diving
1: yeah, shore diving. You know, it's funny because shore diving is really hard to find a legal fish these days, especially in Southern California. Uh, when you're diving in the water, it's it's usually shorts, so it's really tough to find uh, a good sized fish. And there's a lot of fishing game out here, so I, th- I think a lot of beginners are getting, you know, heavy fines for for not knowing their size limits and you know being able to estimate the size of a fish underwater before you shoot it, It's not easy. So obviously, everyone's got a gun underwater and they're excited to shoot it. You know. Biggest mistake in spearfishing usually with shore diving, especially around here. Yeah.
0: Do you ever uh, use pole spears?
1: That's why, how I learned how to dive. Yeah, I learned how to pole spear right away. And, and it was really easy and effective because the water was very murky and doesn't make a lot of noise. There's a lot of benefits to a pole spear, you know.
0: Can you touch on the fact that how spear fishing is, is some of the most environmentally friendly way to fish on the planet? Well, yeah, you think about, think about the ways people traditionally catch fish now.
2: You know, like they're going out with these seiners, these nets, and they're taking out generations of fish. Even on the recreational level, though, if you dive around a harbor or you dive anywhere
1: basic, you see tackle and shit all over the reef. It's gross. It's like fishing lines and just like all types of even recreational stuff, not even um, commercial. Like I'm not, like even for a recreation, for just catching fish for your dinner. Uh, you notice that a lot, and the more you dive in a reef, you find a bunch of treasures. You know, it's it's good for a diver, bad for the environment. We're like, oh, look at this tackle! This thing's great. Like, find all types of stuff
2: down there. It's crazy. I mean, the, the cool thing about spearfishing too is like, you're not just blindly throwing a hook and bait in the water. You're down there actually looking at what you're going to take. So, like, picture being in like a food market and being like, okay, which pig am I going to take and shoot and bring home to my family? Am I going to take this weak one that I didn't see coming and just fell into my lap? Or am I going to take like a, a healthy looking pig and, br- and take it out and bring it to my family? So it's like you're kind of choosing the, the animal you're going to actually take out. And, you know, there's definitely plenty of things that you could take from nature that aren't healthy animals that you probably should not be in- ingesting. Isn't pig another word that people
1: use for big fish? they use cow there's a lot of, a lot of different terms you could use any t- pig <laughs> slug <laughs> yeah there's some
0: pig looking fish i'd say it's, yeah yeah there's some yeah there's some funny ones yeah so something i i observe all the time having been able to live with you guys for a short period of time is how much you guys surf sometimes i wonder <laughs> <laughs> do you think surfing helps or hurts your business
1: I
2: think without surfing, we would have no business. True. I mean, Eric landed our biggest retailer surfing. Just talking to him in the lineup. Our biggest sales have come just from surfing.
1: what more than that, though, even manufacturing i have gotten through surfing. So, like, even what we're doing with recycled leather wouldn't happen without surfing. It's like there's a lot of things that we could thank from surfing. Um,
0: Slippa wouldn't exist without surfing. Yeah. Do you think that there's certain boundaries that you should operate within in terms of surfing three or four times a day or do you think that you get creative when you're surfing like because you, you mentioned once to me I think one of the hardest things for our society today is detaching from social media detaching from our emails anyone that's owning or operating a startup knows that they're they're constantly looking at their emails because that next big customer could come that could change their life they're not in a position where they can lay back and chill you guys you know you're, you're getting to a position where your business is literally three four xing year over year right now which is nuts right is that would you recommend that as an outlet or or how does surfing kind of cleanse you your your soul in a kind of weird way of saying it do you think that it like makes you guys more relaxed when it comes to the business do you think it offers as an escape this combination of everything
1: you know it's like you might even run into someone that could help you on the next step as well um so there's a lot to thank for. It's like going to the gym, you know, everyone benefits from that. And if, especially if you wake up early, I, I don't think it interferes at all. And you're doing it like at sunset or like, like morning
2: and sunset. That's a, that's a really good ritual. Um, I, th- I think it's like, you know, on a personal level, it's like just pure passion and it's almost like it gives you like a purpose
0: to wake up every day and live yeah and you guys have traveled the world surfing so uh, I'm personally I love scuba diving it's just my thing like oh man I get so stoked about it and I see that for you guys that's surfing for you and you guys have pretty much surfed set uh, probably like 10 con- 10 different countries at this point um I would say just
1: probably surf
2: more countries
0: than that I'd say probably around 30 wow thirty. So, yeah so out of all the different places you've been what what has been the all-time um
2: well for me it was Peru
0: Really, for you is Peru, well,
2: huh? Yeah, it's the longest wave in the world, Chicama.
1: Yeah, I mean I, I I think somewhere in Indonesia would probably be. Mm, yeah, Indonesia was really good actually. Best.
2: Um yeah, I take that back sh- back actually, definitely Indonesia.
1: <laughs> 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 That's what I thought so, okay. Well,
2: Indonesia was like a different vibe to its tropical, you know. Like Peru was, it was gnarly. It was like it was like apocalyptic wasteland. Like you get off the bus and it's like you fear for your life it's just poverty and desert meets the ocean it's just gnarly Indo (laughs) is just pure beauty it's just unreal
0: you said you could stay at like a five-star hotel there for like six dollars in certain parts of indo yeah it was crazy like bali it's like way overrun it's it's
2: definitely not what um it used to be and i feel like it's become more commercialized but if you venture off of bali and get to like sumatra or lombok or
0: uh Sumbawa. I mean, yeah, you could you could find places for like two, three dollars a night. That's gnarly. If you had to move to any country, so obviously you guys love San Diego. I don't think there's any two people that love San Diego more than you guys. Mexico. 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 It's basically San Diego. Yeah, it's, it's like it's <laughs> it's such like a twenty th- minutes away. Yeah, it's kind <laughs> of a lame answer. It's not a, It's <laughs> a reasonable answer. So like, you, you mean like
2: to live anywhere in the world and be able to run the business? Yeah. Yeah, that's it. I don't, that's definitely not it
1: for me. Um, well, I mean, for us to do what we're doing and target what we're about to do, it's well, I think
2: he's saying like, if we could live anywhere and still do this and it, it, we don't have to be here, like, you don't have to be near San Diego.
1: Yeah. I see what he means. Maybe Indonesia then somewhere between there.
0: Can your business be completely done remote or do you no. think that not yet? Not yet. yet.
2: Yeah. We're not there yet. It's like, here's the thing, right? We're, we're developing a brand. We're not running a business. We're basically creating a name with like power and, and purpose behind it. That just, that just uh, requires blood, sweat and tears for, for years, maybe even decades to really grow to the way we
0: want it to be. Slip has been around for how long? Like three and a half years. And at what point did you feel like you really started to get traction on building your actual brand? versus just selling stuff. I mean, even within the first year, you feel it immediately. Like, you know when you have something, you know what I mean? It's
1: easy to tell. It was immediate. You had immediate success? Immediate, yeah. yeah. Like like large volume custom orders coming through from big clients. It was like, overwhelming for sure. You know, International distribution with TJX, like all these crazy things that you wouldn't even realize were possible and they happen really fast. But, you know, just because you, some people can't even grow that fast and it's not always a good thing. Especially if you're trying to like, you know, Take your time and so make sure getting, you don't make a mistake.
2: Or if you don't have access to a lot of capital, right? Which is wh- which is the biggest issue with growing fast. But I mean, you know, Eric and I had a unique business because we had a product that no one else
0: had. So that's what gave us all the attention. What was your biggest kind of oh shit moment where you thought you might have been in over your heads? Oh my God, so many of those.
1: Pro- the TV thing when we um, when that TV company went out of business that was probably the the big one.
2: That was a big one. There was a few.
1: Yeah, there's a few manufacturing issues and
2: manufacturing for sure.
1: Yeah, the, the shipping, see, customs, all that kind customs, of stuff.
2: Customs. Yeah, our first shipment into the country, they were like, "Yeah, you're, you're not bringing this into the containers, U.S." Containers,
1: like shipping containers. It was just
2: stuck at L.A. Harbor at L.A. Uh, at Long Beach Harbor. Um, I, I didn't hire a customs broker. Like I thought, oh yeah, you just order stuff and they deliver it. No, that there's customs. There's protocol. They're like middlemen. Yeah. Like, dude, you're an idiot. You can't just order this shit and expect it to come to your door. Can you explain what that guy is a customs? So basically a customs broker. He's basically a person um, uh, that facilitates the transport of a product in from one country to another. And he provides the paperwork and essential um, steps that are required from the US government to allow something to pass through our borders. So basically he has the relationships and knowledge to say, Hey, this is what you need to do. This is the paperwork you need. This is the licenses and, and, uh, you know, information you need to have re- readily
0: available and he gets it through. Gotcha. Shipping has been, uh, hard for you guys. You know, you guys have a overall larger product.
1: Ship- shipping is an issue when you're dealing with volume always. It's is an issue for any product based business. Yeah. yeah, it's definitely product based businesses always have the most struggles and that's why When something works, it's really amazing and people study it because it's like one of those things where they're like, why does this work? And how do we do other other things like this, you know, in
0: terms of methods of shipping? Is there anything that you've learned along your way? I know, Eric, you do a lot of the the shipping.
1: I've learned that, you know, the majority of shipping companies don't really give anyone deals until you're doing massive volume. You know, it's there's really no in between with most things in business. It's like you have to order lots of minimum, like the minimums are never reasonable from manufacturers. You know, your, your shipping companies are never going to give you good deals at first. Like they, they want you to just do they want you to impress them so much. So what,
2: what, what do you mean by
1: volume? I mean that if you're not doing like, you know, thousand dollars in shipping a month and like they're not going to give you any type of discount at all.
2: I think it's more like a thousand dollars a day.
1: Yeah, pretty much. Exactly. Like, I mean, that, that was like, I was talking to a, FedEx. They're
2: like, oh, you don't ship out a million packages a year. Hmm. No discount.
1: Yeah, really. Yeah. USPS is actually really reasonable, especially internationally. Um, just today, I shipped a bunch of boxes to Japan and I try to work with a transport company, but they are trying to charge me a hundred dollars to bring it to another distribution center for no reason. And then all these other fees on things that don't make sense. So it's it's sometimes our our United States Postal Service is usually the best call for even doing volume. Um, How much did
2: that cost? The USPS
1: four hundred seventy dollars versus versus unknown uh, amount of number well above that yeah like probably over 500 it's probably 600 yeah they wanted 100 dollars to bring it to la and then they were gonna charge me 200 per box and it only cost 180 per box on usps mm. or 230 actually yeah. but yeah it didn't make sense it was just like it wasn't even gonna ship out for weeks you know so it's like crazy how this works but um i, th- I think a lot of people can could agree with this is you know, starting a product based company is more about mastering the art of creating a, a planned out logistics, uh, shipping method, you know, and having a product that makes sense. Something over a pound is usually a lot more money to ship. Once you, once you go under a pound, if you have a product that's below 16 ounces, then you're in you're, good shape. you're looking at a really, really profitable thing to ship. are um, in really good shape across the planet.
0: Shipping one one baby right there under right. A pound, keep it under a pound. One thing that Jeff is obsessed with is a line called complacency is death. Oh yeah. What? Tell me about that. Where did that come from? Why do you believe that? And, and what's your thoughts with that phrase? So, I mean, complacency is basically when you settle for something, right?
2: So I, I personally have always had the attitude that, you know, the human potential is endless. And if you're not constantly, bettering yourself and improving your skill sets, then you're never going to actually, you know, do anything spectacular with your life. I mean, you might have success, but you'll never know how successful that you could really be. Um, Complacency is one thing that in my opinion is like my biggest fear is being okay with average being okay with being mediocre. You know, that's not acceptable in my opinion. Um, so I feel like if you're going to be okay with being average and mediocre, you might as well just roll over and die.
0: In terms of content creation, do you think Instagram has been a big driver for you? I know you guys have a pop. On I, Instagram. I don't think it's
1: a driver for us. I think it's a, one of these platforms that we're forced to, you know, update um, out of I, all the platforms. I think I it's the most important. Best. I think Facebook
2: is dying. You do. I do. I Why think that? that I think that right now there's a lot of older people, adapting to Facebook and the younger generations moving away from it. And when I see people at our age group, less and less are utilizing Facebook more and more are utilizing things like Instagram and Snapchat. I mean, people maybe occasionally check Facebook. They even check it daily. But Facebook's become like a political palooza. It's become a a vent. You know, people talk about their struggles and their personal issues, and it's like almost depressing to go on it now. I, th- I think both platforms are for short attention spans,
1: and they just like keep people changing their focus, and it's not the best habit. Um, Mark Zuckerberg should probably be in jail for that. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I think he's a fucking genius, but yeah, I mean, uh, I, I mean, it's it's. I guess it's extremely to say Facebook is dying, but. I think Instagram is on the up and up.
3: I think for branding, uh, being a self prominent page on Facebook as a, as a brand is extremely hard rather than Instagram. There's more personality to it almost. Mm. I don't go to Facebook to go to check out a brand and see what they're up to. You know, I might catch their advertisements on the side, but other than that, like I feel like Instagram's got the upper hand on that.
1: Some some of the biggest brands that I am inspired by don't even uh, have an Instagram. You know, so like I, I, I like think what,
2: like which ones
1: like our friend's shoe company that's like, you know, running, you know, 10 million dollars of Italian shoes out of the out of the country, you know, all over the place. And th- th- like you wouldn't even know them off the top of your head, but they're, they're killing it. So it's like that. Unfortunately, most most people just look at Instagram. and They look at it as a success, but it's really just a, a big facade, you know, so it's
2: almost like, yeah, it's become like a requirement. I think and I think his company, I personally know that they are they are heading in that direction to, to utilize social media because they know they have to they have to Keep adapt up. with the times. Yeah, right. I mean, this guy started this business 30 years ago, you know, he grew up in a time where there was no computers. So, you know, he's and now his kids are taking over the business. He's going to he's going to evolve to that soon. Right, I, I mean, think a, l- a lot of companies rely
1: completely on Instagram, which I think is like really dangerous, you know, but um, it's it's all about keeping up with what's what's going on. So that's what people do.
0: Do you have any success tips you'd, you'd share about in terms of with Instagram? Yeah. Seems
1: the videos are probably Jeff's favorite thing to, to do lately. I, I think that's what the I story, keeping an updated story, you know, keeping fresh content. And that takes a lot of work is making constant stories and videos. That's a lot to keep.
2: Good, good, fresh content is important. Yeah, I think I think when you're just posting the post is when you have issues. I think you need to post with a purpose. You need to really, you know, think about what you're putting up there, um, you know, putting quality stuff up, not just throwing up a photo that's, you know, taken from a, a crappy phone or something. I think uh, I think you have to put more thought into it.
1: Even if it's done with a phone, it could be good. You know, you never know. It's well, yeah, if it's like an iPhone X with freaking
2: better you know, megapixels on some of these cannons now. It's it's crazy. You you just got the new GoPro, right? Oh my God, dude. Yeah. The six. I'm so stoked on that thing. I haven't really put it to to use yet. So I don't want to like, you know, rave about it at this moment. Um, but I literally got the other day. So when I bring it on the boat or uh, my next trip, I'll, I'll give you more insight on it.
0: Yeah. You guys got a GoPro when you spearfish.
2: Yeah. That's why I bought it literally for today.
0: Did you, uh, you see Wong's in and out case? yeah over what, the over 50, under 50? over under that's yeah, what it's yeah, called
2: yeah i want to get one of those for sure eventually what do those
0: go for they're cheap now 50 bucks. on amazon you get them cheap that's insane how good camera qualities have gone i know and how cheap it's gotten those you things used to be like a thousand bucks minimum you said it rivals rivals
2: skyler's a7s2 i think the gopro six footage is like pff, it's, it's up there i think it has a
0: different perspective yeah it's it's different all comparable yeah things are changing fast so what uh future product ideas are you guys working on i don't know if we want to you
2: want to tell them or is that i mean uh i don't really think we should like go too deep into it but i think we should we're, talk we're exploring about
1: new fabrics and um more sustainable types of dyes so that's all i'll leave it at is, is more more dye more colors from natural sources and then new fabrics that are
2: stronger and more sustainable and just better yeah i think also like more unique items that are uh, more exclusive so instead of doing like these massive production runs. We're going to do smaller runs and make it more of an exclusive, you know, line of product. So like Eric and I are very passionate about making things in America. So mm-hmm. a lot of this stuff is going to be made in USA and we're not going to produce it at a level of like tens of thousands of units. Uh, we're going to keep it with a low production. So it's one of those things that if you get your hands on it, you should consider yourself lucky.
0: Well, one thing that's cool about your products is they can be used in many different ways. You know, it's like a towel, right? From your primary, I have I personally have your wallet, which I love. You guys hooked me up with this wallet; it's phenomenal. Oh yeah, that was a, that was a funny day. I had like one of those big, big ass old wallets where you have like 15, 20 cards in there. Thirty business cards you don't even know that person anymore. Yeah, <laughs> and it was like almost like being a hoarder. Like I didn't want to let it go.
2: <laughs> it's amazing how many people are like that, like people that you would never guess.
0: You know, you look into their wallet and you're just like, Jesus. Cool. So, what would you guys say to someone that? is thinking of getting started and building their own company that's on the fence, maybe has a comfortable job, or just is thinking of kind of taking the leap into starting their own business. If you're going to start a brand, be ready for a long
2: ride for a lot of ups and downs, probably one of the more challenging businesses you could start. Yeah, I mean, it's all about
1: just preparing for um, just being open-minded. I think that's the best, best way to say it. You know, not thinking, just not being, putting all your eggs in one basket, you know, that's a big part of it. Um, and by that, I mean, don't, don't just, don't have a, you have to have three backup plans, you know what I mean? So just, you could you get through anything, you just have to think of it through and uh, there's always another way of doing something, so. Some people
0: say that in order to make plan A work, you can't have a plan B whatsoever.
1: Yeah, well, what happens when plan A actually doesn't work and your manufacturer says, oh, um, yeah, like you, you got a shit quality from your manufacturer. Now you have to adapt. Like plan A didn't work. You know, what, what about plan yeah, B? I I don't
0: know if I agree with that statement either. You I mean, know? you look at. But yeah, we're, we're talking about something different. You're talking about plan A, B, C and D for your business. I was talking about. I'm, I'm talking about a business versus.
2: I'm talking about that, too. Oh, OK. Right. Um, like you look at guys like Warby Parker, you know, these students that had this concept for a glasses company. They all had a backup plan with a corporate job, you know, and they actually had a professor not fund them because they had a backup plan because that was his line. And guess what? Warby Parker worked. It was a su- success. Now they're a billion dollar company. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I think having a plan B is not the worst thing, but I think if you're going to have a plan A, you put a hundred percent into it. But um, to have a, a fallback plan is not the yeah, worst to, thing
1: to think that you know oh only having plan a is gonna like get you through everything then what happens when you know something truly hits a brick wall yeah you know what i mean like you you do hit those walls when you start a business especially when you're manufacturing and so it's like yeah it's inevitable you have to be ex- you have to expect that already expect it and then have the plan to, to fix it you know
0: have advisors played a big role for you guys oh
2: yeah for sure um like i used to work for a pretty large company doing sales and I mean, they're like the CEOs of that company are basically our board of directors. I mean, I talk to them all the time for advice. Um, and I, and Eric actually Eric networks with a lot of entrepreneurs in our, in our industry.
1: That that's the main thing. I think the problem is the people that Jeff are talking to, they, they really can't grasp what we're doing as far as like the long road, as far as someone that has like a contracting business or, or something like in they've, they've saved their asses market. with
2: like certain things like legal things. Yeah. Like I, we got our attorney through them who saved our asses numerous times. So you recommend having a good attorney? Oh, God, yeah. You need a good attorney. You need a good accountant. There's certain things you just need to have. But we didn't have an attorney. Or an accountant. Or an accountant. <laughs> and then we, we had a situation come up, and guess what? I had you know mentors and people to talk to to help me get through it. And without them, Eric and I probably would have been in a court courtroom for like months on end getting our business shut down.
0: Something I've found is that successful people more often than not are willing to help. If you reach out. Like, what do you mean by that? Like people that have had huge
2: success in
1: in sales, not so much in legal things and and the unique stuff. I think so. Yeah.
2: Well, no, I I don't think he means like, uh, like people going out of their way to help you. I think he means just people that are like, if you go out and ask for help a lot, they'll give you advice. And then, but those are the people that are most successful, right? Because they're constantly looking to get better. And they're not scared to ask somebody for advice. So
0: I think, yeah, that's huge. Yeah, I think ego is a big deal. When oh,
2: God, yeah. Stubbornness.
0: Yeah, you talk about ego a lot. Yeah. Do you think that this business is giving you a, a bad ego or a good ego? Or how do you think that kind of I think it's
2: humbled my ego.
1: I think it makes you more conscious of having a good ego because you don't want people to look at,
0: you know, what you're doing as because that's you're pretty much an extension of what you're selling, you know, like the brand is you guys, like, right. Everything you do represents that brand and you've done a phenomenal job doing it. It's surfing, spearfishing, yeah. selling stuff from all over.
2: Yeah, man. It's fun.
0: Your, your guys' plans are exciting. Is there anything else that you'd want to share with anybody listening? Anyone that's trying to make moves any way that people could contact you guys or, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I'd say my biggest,
2: I take away like piece of advice for someone that wants to start a company is sales is number one. You'll, you'll always be your number one sales guy. And if you're not constantly pushing what you're trying to accomplish, you're not going to be successful. Yeah. I think on top of that,
1: you also um, want to create goals for yourself to accomplish like on a, on at least a weekly basis, you know, just consistent goal setting, consistent goal setting. Yeah. Cause you're not going to hit a goal unless you have one. So, Keep those markers.
3: Question everybody wants to know the answer to Lefts or Rights?
1: Lefts. Always (laughs)
0: Rights.
3: All right. With that said, guys, thanks so much for jumping on.
0: Thanks for having us. All All right, man. Thank you for having us. All right. Peace. Peace.
3: Thank you for listening
0: to another episode of Len Jones Party of Two. If you enjoyed it, please leave
3: us a review and subscribe to stay up to date on our new episodes. And remember, hope is not a strategy. Keep making moves. Till next time. Peace.